of God today. Peace among tribulation. John chapter 16, verses 16, excuse me, verses 29 through 33. John 16, 29 through 33. Read the text. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The Grand Canyon, a beautiful sight to behold. 277 miles long, at its narrowest, it's 4 miles wide, at the widest, 18 miles wide. John Wesley Powell, an American explorer and a geologist, is best known for his exploration of the Grand Canyon, going down the Colorado River. This is what he said about the Grand Canyon, quote, The wonders of the Grand Canyon cannot be adequately represented in symbols of speech, nor by speech itself. Now, the National Park Service recommends that hikers take certain precautions due to the dangers with the heat and the rugged environment. In fact, you go on their website, www.nps.gov, and look up Grand Canyon, you'll see frequently asked questions about hiking. Some of them are general in nature, how long will it take, the equipment that you may need, food and water, and safety. There's a lot of questions there. So they want you to take precautions. It's a beautiful place to go, a beautiful place to explore, but naturally there is precautions that you need to take. You just don't wake up one day and go, let's go hiking down the Grand Canyon without any uh, preparation taking, taking place. Now likewise, there are dangers and trials in our walk with Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 20, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It sounds like there are some dangers and trials coming our way when we truly follow Christ. Now let's look at our text in context. 
John chapter 16, the first 28 verses. Jesus has been teaching about his upcoming departure, the arrival and the work of the Holy Spirit. And part of their following him will involve him going away. And you see that in verses 5 and verses 16 through 22. But they will not be abandoned. They will have a helper, the Holy Spirit, verses 7 through 15. And he talks to them about the promises of prayer, verses 23 through 28. And that's when we pick up the discourse in verse 29. And in verse 29, they say, Lo, or at last, New Living Translation, now you are speaking plainly or clearly, and you're not using a figure of speech, literally saying a proverb. Jesus had told them earlier that a time would come when he would no longer have to speak to them figuratively but then would be speaking plainly and clearly to them. You see it back in verse 25. And look what they say. Because you're speaking plainly and we can understand this, look back in verse 30. Now we know. Now we can see. Now we are sure. Now we understand that you know all things. The Holman Christian Standard translation, we know that you know. Or the NIV, we see that you know. Now they say, we know now. We can finally comprehend what's going on. Now, they're partly correct in their assumption that Jesus has great knowledge. However, it's a generalization about how much knowledge he has. A typical overstatement that far beyond exceeds their capacity to comprehend. Such an assumption often becomes part of our theological assumptions. Jesus states that he does not know when the end will come. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. He says, I don't know what will happen. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only God the Father knows when that time is going to happen. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, states that Jesus emptied himself, made himself nothing. Now, I have to admit, we don't fully understand what all that means. But just to say he knows everything, that's a, a generalization. What does he specifically know? Let me say this. If you agree that God knows everything, then by implication, what does that mean? That means he knows everything about you. Everything you've done. Everything you've said. In dark, doesn't matter. He knows you better than you know yourself. He understands what's going on. Now, that knowledge can be reassuring that he still loves me in spite of what he knows, but also can be scary in the fact that there is nothing that I can hide from God. We just sang a song that he looks into the heart beyond what appears. He's looking into our heart, looking at what the intention is. Look what they say in verse 30. We know that you know all things and by this, we believe that you come, came from God. And that's theologically correct. Yet, practically and existentially at this time, for them, it's an unfulfilled claim. This went far beyond their personal understanding and commitments. Jesus did come from God, but what did it actually mean for them? In other words, let me just go around the bush here for a second, they, as they say. They could make... And we can make theological statements 
about Christ, like Martha did. John chapter 11, verse 21 and 22, 24 and 27. Listen to what Martha says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have not died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. In verse 24, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection and on the last day. And verse 27, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Great theological statements about who Jesus is. But her life responses do not actually coordinate or link up to what she professes. Later in John chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus tells them to remove the stone, talking about Lazarus had died, and she says to him, Martha, the sister of the sea, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for days. Wait a second, you, you declared he was Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and now you're worried about this? Seems to me, if he's truly the Son of God, he can surely raise someone from the dead. Can you see how her statements that she was making did not line up to how she acted? And the disciples will later prove a disconnection between their words. And you see that in verse 32. And this is where the conversation turns. They just told him, you're speaking plainly. We know, we can understand, we know all these things about you. We know you know all things, and by this, we know that you came from God. And look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Or I like the way the NIV does it. Renders grammatically a little different, more of like a, a, a sarcastic statement. You believe at last? Why would he make such a statement to them? Because coming from God or where he came from has been a constant theme throughout the entire gospel. He's been telling them this the whole time. And now, all of a sudden, they believe. The disciples have arrived at the point of a belief that they could express. However, words... And adequate believing may be far apart in real life. See, Jesus hasn't called us to believe in him. He hasn't call, called me just simply to believe in him. He has called me to follow him. And there is a difference. Our lives to this pursuit. In other words, if I say that I believe in Christ, but I have not fully surrender to him, then do I really believe that he says he is who he says he is? If he truly is the Christ, the son of the living God who died for my sins and rose again, if I haven't surrendered everything, I'm not just talking about walking an aisle saying, I'm talking about surrendering everything, then how can I really say that I believe him? Either I do or I don't. Jesus says himself, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? See, Many people will say they believe in Jesus, but that does not mean that they have arrived at a point in their life where their ethics, their behavior, what they do, what they say, follow what they say they believe. Now, Jesus knows how to evaluate human believing. For example, in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, 
Now when he's in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew the intent. Don't have to tell him that. He knew exactly if they really believed in him. So my question to all of us this morning, I imagine that everybody in here will affirm that they believe in God, and you may take a step further and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And the next question is, does my life, does your life measure up to that statement? I've said this a while back ago. You can go out in the street and talk about some about God, creation. Some people will concede, yes, there is a universal creator, something above us to create all this. It didn't happen by accident. But when you start talking about Jesus, that's where the separation comes. But I tell you, what the unbelieving world finds it very hard to believe is how can the people of God meet with God, and this not on Sunday, but every day of the week, and stay exactly the same with no difference than the rest of the world. So we are called to follow. We are called to sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. Does that mean? That means I have to die to myself. A constantly, daily, dying to self. And you put this in context, once again, remember, anxiety, Jesus is talking about leaving. And they're kind of concerned about that. Jesus, you're going to leave us? Go back and read the chapter. And look at verse 32. Keep that in mind. In verse 32, he says, An hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. They were concerned about his departure. They had feelings of abandonment. And even though their fears were real, Jesus makes it clear that they would be scattered. They would abandon Jesus. Look what he says there in that verse. Leave me alone. The great reversal. Jesus, don't leave me. I'm not going to leave you. You are going to leave me. Can you see that reversal taking place in the conversation? The glue of Christianity is not the disciples. It's not the pastor. It's not the church. It is Christ. He will not abandon the disciples and leave them as orphans. Even though they will leave him when the pressures and the stress happen. Just like all of us in this room have a tendency to do. Praise God. And we'll praise him when things are going good. But when life squeezes you, do we tend to put Jesus on the back burner? We need to pray about this. Yeah, I know we need to pray about it. Let's do this first. You know, persecution and societal pressures will do strange things to people. Consider this. Throughout the history of the church, people who call themselves and refer to themselves as Christians have pressured other people 
who refer to themselves as Christians to conform to their views or they'll be killed like, I don't know, burning at the stake. Pressure each other. The sad stories of the past are unfortunately being repeated today. Either you believe like me or I'm going to kill you. Now, I'm not going to get into the right and wrong of what I believe. What I, here's the point. There is a huge lie out there that the media has been pushing for years. If I disagree with your belief, then by default I hate you and want to kill you. No! I, don't, I disagree with a lot of my co-workers at the airport. doesn't mean I want something bad to happen for them. I still love them and I still pray for them. But that's where we are in society now. What did Jesus tell us? Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. We can't even seem to love our neighbors. Which is a whole other sermon in itself. Go back and read the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then before you do that, read the history of Israel. Before you get to that parable, it sheds a whole new light on it. We can be sure that when we're tempted to leave, Jesus will never leave us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Even when I am faithless, he is faithful. When I feel away from God, it's not that he's moved. He stayed here. It's me walking away from him. And that's what he's telling disciples here. You think you know all this about me. But let me tell you what's happening, what's going to happen. And he tells us that the Father will not leave him alone, which brings up another question. Let me just chase a rabbit very quickly. It brings to mind a statement Jesus makes on the cross. You see it in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, and then Mark chapter 15, verse 34. You remember what he cries out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, at some point, to Psalm 22, because that's what he's quoting, that it is not merely for a prayer of deliverance, but also ends with a, a praise for the anticipated deliverance to happen. However, just some several points you need to, to talk about in this cry. Shouts, cries, and loud screams are consistent with suffering. If you ever hit your thumb with a hammer, close a door on your foot, do you sit there and not say anything? Ow! Or some of us may even say a bad word now and then, depending on the intensity of the pain. Many victims, when they were crucified, would curse. I mean, crucifixion is a terrible form of suffering. It's, it's taking somebody and slowly squeezing the life force out of them as slow as they could just to just to make it, the torment and the suffering is terrible. And so people would hang there and they would curse those, the officials that condemned them, the people who put them on the cross, they would curse at them and yell at them. But throughout the Gospels, we never see that attitude with Jesus. What did Jesus do on the cross? What did he say? He said a few things on the cross, but he said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And all that pain and agony 
And that suffering, that's what he prayed for. Jesus asked for their forgiveness. Cries and death and suffering are a very human phenomenon. And it's important not to remove Jesus from human suffering because he was fully human and fully divine at the same time. So he has suffered as a human just like you and I have suffered. Perhaps he has suffered more than I have ever suffered in my life because he was crucified. So when you are suffering and you are feeling pain, he knows exactly what that feels like. He has been tempted in every way we are tempted, but yet without sin. He has walked a mile in your shoes. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by his best friends. He knows what it's like for people to spit at him, the very people he came to save. Look, he goes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And they're chanting, woo, here he is. This is I'm just paraphrasing. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And they wave palm branches. And this a few days later, the same people that were praising him as he entered Jerusalem were the same people crying out for his crucifixion. He knows. Jesus' question of why is very reasonable when you consider the suffering he was going through. In fact, we ask God, why? In the middle of our suffering. Have you ever asked God, why? Why, God? There's more to be said, but Jesus was human, crying out in pain. Why, God? He's showing that he was human. He has walked a mile in your shoes. I wasn't prepared to say this, but I talked about Martha earlier and Lazarus had died. If he would have showed up early, he could have saved Lazarus, but he raises Lazarus from the dead. But in that story, you read about how people were weeping. You know, not just weeping, I'm talking about that deep wail, grief. You've experienced that. And Jesus, looking around and feeling their response, you know what Scripture says he did before he raised them? He wept. He felt their pain, and it moved him so deeply that he cried and that he wept. And in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. The promise of peace or shalom. It's foundational to this medic understanding of wholeness and satisfying life. It's clearly dependent upon in me. Do you want true peace? True peace can only be found in Christ. The idea that peace and wholeness of life or salvation is to be found fully in Jesus or in Christ is significant. In Christianity, it's not referring to us going and seeking how we be with Christ by ourselves, but rather it's a community idea that when we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays in fellowship, we should be sharing and telling each other what it's like to be in Christ, our experience in Christ. Let me tell you what Christ did this week. Let me tell you how he, he comforted me or he, he just... Was there, and I, and I prayed. 
we should be sharing those with each other. You get around people like that that know what it's like. It's great, a bond that will form. In fact, I have a lot of brothers. They're not my blood brothers, but they're brothers in Christ that I'm closer than I ever was to my brother because the experiences that we've gone through, uh, being in that trench, as you will, with each other. In verse 33, and I want to leave on this point. In the world you have tribulation, you will have suffering, you will have trials and sorrows, but take courage or take heart, I have overcome the world. In spite of predicted troubles, they are called and we are called to encouragement. That word overcome is, in a, is a Greek verb, but it's in the perfect tense. What's a perfect tense mean? It means something that happens in the past and the results of his action, this doesn't go forward and stop a little bit. No, the action, the results of the action continues on into the present and on into eternity. And here what is being used as is a prolific sense of victory. So what is he doing? He's describing an event that has not taken place yet, the way it could have, but treating a future event as if it's already happened. See, Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. He hadn't risen from the grave yet, but yet he's saying, I have overcome the world. You see that? So when we talk about Jesus coming again, we shouldn't talk about like some future event that we wish it would happen. We should talk about it like it's already happened. It's a reality. We don't have to wish for it or hope that it comes. It will come. See, overall message of this text is not the proclamation of a defeatist attitude. It's a message of encouragement in the face of anxiety and genuine concern. Are we in a society of anxiety and concern and fear? Dearly beloved, take heart. Christ has overcome the world. This is all going to go away. And one day it will be completely gone. And to follow Christ is not a call to superficial discipleship. Rather, it is a call to self-serving obedience that is modeled on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This peace that he offers is not the peace of the world because the peace of the world is an empty promise that can only bring temporary comfort. Because during times of prosperity, nations experience peace. But let something bad happen. Let something get in the works and tear everything up. That's when the peace disappears. God's peace is a permanent peace offered by the only one who can be trusted to keep his word and has the solution for what causes all sin. That is the problem. What we see happening in our world is a result of sin. Only he has the answer for it. In spite of all the concerns and anxieties that they had, the disciples, and us, by the way, they have an ultimate hope of being with Jesus in a specially prepared place and a hope of victory for living in a world of hatred and trouble. And because of Christ, we can experience peace among tribulation. If you're not experiencing tribulation, suffering and sorrow, you will be. Either you're right in the middle of it or you just got out, you're fixing to go in. That's life. 
But he promises peace. In a way of closing, an illustration. You know, it seems like more movies and TV shows and advertisers employ a new device that they begin the story at the end. They, they show you the ending of the story first, how everything ends, and it says, oh, two weeks earlier or four weeks earlier. You've seen those movies like their TV show, and you go back in time. You see how it ends, but now you're going to go back in time, and that draws people in. It gets them engaged because they want to know how the characters get to that end. What happened to get them there? Now, as believers in Christ, we know the ending. Do you know the ending? You know how this all turns out? But we forget that the journey will not be easy. What's the old song say? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die to get there. If you follow Christ, you will have difficulties. You will suffer. However, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that trouble, in the midst of every voice that's clamoring for your attention, you can have peace that goes beyond comprehension. Therefore, just as the dangers of the Grand Canyon do not dissuade people from going and experiencing that lovely piece of artwork that God created. This is absolutely beautiful. And I wish I had the pictures up here to show you. All the, it is dangerous. I mean, you're in the middle of a desert. There's wild animals. There's not bathrooms in every corner. There's no Walmarts down there. You got to take, you got to plan. But it's a dissuade people for going and experiencing it. Just like that doesn't keep them. Don't let our difficulties and trials keep us from truly following Christ. That's what the enemy is trying to do. Keep your eyes over here, over there, over here. Keep them right on the prize. Will it be easy? No. There'll be times when we laugh and we rejoice. There'll be times when we just fall out weeping. But see, that's okay. Because I don't serve a great high priest. I don't serve a guy who doesn't understand all this. I, I serve a Savior who knows exactly what it's like to be human. And he told me that he'll never leave me. He will not forsake me. He will always be there. Even when I run and I commit sin, I, I, I do horrible things, he's still there. One last thought. Think on this. Look at the world today. All the evil hatred that we see happening. Not only here at home, our country is divided. A lot of stuff happening, even around the world. Some people shaking their fist in God, blaspheming in his holy name. People doing horrible things in the name of Christ. And yet, he is still reaching down and calling out to every last one of us. Come to me. Come home. 
Have you made a commitment to Christ? Are you surrendered everything over to Christ? Are you following Christ? If you have made that commitment and that statement, don't let this time slip you by. Because if you're like me, even now, I feel the correction of the Holy Spirit. And you though it's painful, I welcome it because now God is treating me like his son. Just like we correct our children because we love them. He's corrected me because he loves me to rescue me. He loves me enough not to leave me there. He loves me to transform me into the image of his son. Don't let this pass you by. Go to him. You come up here, you can pray. You can pray where you're at. Perhaps you want to get some people together and pray. But please, do not take this time for granted. Time is very, very short. Perhaps he's leading you here to join us here at Forestburg Baptist Church. We'd love to have you. Wonderful people here. Very wonderful people here. But this is your time. This is your invitation. Please respond to God as he's calling on your heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this wonderful opportunity. Jesus, we thank you for your love and for your mercy, for your faithfulness. Father, I know there's some among us who feel like they're too far gone, that somehow they've messed up too much. Father, nothing's impossible with you. I pray to God that your love and your grace and your mercy will fall upon this place. Call us to your side. Wrap your loving arms of mercy and grace around each one of us and pull us close. Father, remind us of who we are and who we belong to. Thank you for the peace that we can have in the midst of trouble and suffering. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for transforming us. And we look forward to the day that we can see you and our faith will become our sight. See the wonders of heaven. See the nail-scarred hands. But until that day comes, may we be beacons of light and hope that shine your light in this cold, dark world. Continue to move and continue to speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?